welcome to For Your Consideration, a podcast of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. The Study Center exists to facilitate the thoughtful consideration of a Christian understanding of life and culture in the university community. For Your Consideration brings you audio from our events and also interviews with guest scholars. This episode, you can listen to a lecture delivered in October at the Study Center by Christine Emba. Ms. Emba is a columnist for the Washington Post and the author of Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. That book and its exploration of a more fruitful way to think about the ethics of sex is the subject of her talk. So, first of all, thank you to Mike for inviting me to Gainesville. And thank you to all of you for coming out on a weeknight to listen to me talk about sex. Uh, I'm saying to someone else, you know, I'm no like Ben Sass, but hopefully you'll actually get me. (laughs) I want to know what you guys are feeling about that, actually. And I have questions, but I will save that for conversation afterwards. Um, But yes, as introduced, my first book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, came out in March. And I have been extremely gratified to be able to share it, to talk about it, to argue with people about it um, since it came out. It's been a ride, I would say, since then. But I've found it valuable in that I've continued to sort of refine my thinking on this topic uh, long after the book itself was finished. Um, And I know that our conversation after this will help me continue to do that. I think that we need to be able to make really strong claims about what a good sexual culture looks like. But we also have to be willing to acknowledge the ways in which certain definitions of what good sex or good desire looks like might be exclusionary and have been used to harm people or marginalize people in the past. I'm thinking of sexual minorities and women especially, but anyone. There's a long tradition of sort of moral norms being weaponized. And I also think that we have to be open to negotiation and open to hearing from voices that have been excluded from this conversation in the past. And so, yes, we're having this talk at the Christian Study Center, but we also need to be able to speak to everyone, not just people who agree with us or those who share our values. And I just wanted to put that out there up front, um, but also just note that, you know, that said, having written an entire book about sex, which was not really like a career goal of mine. Uh, (laughs) And one that includes in some detail, unfortunately, my kind of thoughts and ponderings, um, feelings and experiences. It's just extremely gratifying, if also sometimes a little bit excruciating, (laughs) um, to be able to talk about it with you. And I'm really excited that you're interested in hearing about it and maybe even reading it. I won't presume, but I have 10 copies of the book and they will be on sale for like 20 bucks each after this talk. But to start, um, to give you sort of a feel for how I entered in this conversation, uh, I'll begin from reading a bit about, a bit from the book itself. And I'll do that sort of throughout this talk, um, just to kind of center the experience and what I was writing. So, to start, 
The average American millennial has their sexual debut around the age of 17. I came on stage more than a decade later than that. It's not that I didn't want to have sex in all that time. I did, sometimes desperately. I didn't escape my college's hookup scene untouched, and several boyfriends worth of on-the-edge encounters left me, and them, I'm sure, furious at myself for my stance. I ran up against my commitments in narrow dorm bunk beds and on first apartment mattresses laid on the floor, wrapped in the hot, rumpled sheets of those New York City summer nights that seemed made for the crush of bodies. My whispered nose left me feeling more and more outside the current as the years passed. Despite my perpetual virginity, my non-sex-having twenties were full of sex, even if I wasn't the one having it. Countless brunch conversations revolved around my friends' experiences with the men and women in their lives, and their processing of what every moment and movement meant. I was goggled at whenever I revealed my uneventful celibacy to a new friend, and was frequently, and often reproachfully, lectured on how I was missing out. What I heard again and again was contradiction. Having sex was a marker of adulthood and a way to define yourself. But also, the act itself didn't really matter. Good sex was the consummate experience. But a relationship with your partner was not to be expected. It was nearly impossible not to indulge your desires. An extended singlehood was a state near unto death. Yet I could and did say no, and was clearly still alive. <laughs> the tensions of sex versus not sex versus how to do it right have always been of interest to me, both professionally, as Mike noted, I'm a journalist at the Post and my beat is ideas in society, which is kind of just whatever I'm interested in. Um, but it's also of interest to me personally, as a young woman trying to navigate the modern world and have experiences and find relationships. Um, all of the stuff that I imagine many of you are trying to do as well. And it's also of interest to me because of my comparatively specific background. Um, both of my parents are Nigerian immigrants and I was raised sort of evangelical, Pentecostal in tradition. And I converted to Catholicism my senior year of college, which is when most people are actually leaving faiths. But in the end, that meant that I had friends on both sides of the aisle, meaning not like Catholic Protestant, but religious and completely not. But one thing that I think all of us had in common, and that I kept noticing basically from high school or even middle school on, is that there's a cultural obsession with having sex. Um, it's one that still exists, obviously. Sex is everywhere, and we talk about it constantly. And then more recently, there's been a consistent emphasis on the project of sex positivity as a feminist action and a mode of empowerment, something that balloons a term with very specific origins in kind of like the mid 80s feminist sex wars into something very different, an idea of being up for anything with anyone all the time, um, a pressure, I think, all of its own. And then if you were to read the news, say, you'd think that we're in the golden ages of sex having. 
I mean, contraception is readily available. Dating apps are literally everywhere. Taboos are falling. Most Americans are accepting of premarital sex, even Christians. And I mean, you guys are on a college campus, so I think that has its own effect. But yet, a lot of people don't seem to be having that much fun. Even if they say that they are, even if they think they're supposed to be. And then there's actually data to back that up too. So nearly half of American adults and a majority of women say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the past 10 years. And according to the Pew Research Center, fully half of single Americans have given up completely on dating or finding a relationship at all. And then if you look at the statistics on uh, relationships, partnerships, and marriage, they've actually reached a 30-year low with young people, people your age, leading the retreat from any sort of interaction um, in a romantic way with members of the opposite or same sex. So what is going on? So as I mentioned, Rethinking Sex came out of my work uh, as a writer at the Washington Post, and a few of you were asking me about this earlier. In 2017 and 2018, I was writing a lot about the big Me Too cases. This was sort of at the peak of the moment. Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, um, et cetera, all of this was happening. And those were fascinating cases for what they brought up about sort of what the sexual revolution and the feminist movements had promised us, where we were supposed to be, and how we clearly hadn't made it as far as we thought. But even more than these big sort of headline cases, what became more interesting to me and what I heard more about, frankly, were the edge cases, the everyday life questions in a way, where the problem encounter wasn't rape exactly or sexual assault necessarily because it was technically consented to, but it wasn't good. The sex wasn't good. The encounter wasn't good. And I talked to dozens of people, first in a general sense, and then more specifically in doing interviews for the book. And I heard again and again about people having sexual encounters that they didn't really want for reasons that they didn't really agree with. And this was the norm. This was the general culture. This is what people were saying me too about. Like, yeah, it sucks, but this is what it is now. And it was a depressing state of affairs that something so bad could be normal. And it was a state of affairs turbocharged by pornography, which had mainstreamed even more and more excessive uh, sexual acts. And then the proliferation of dating apps which made it seem falsely, I can assure you, that there's always another person around the corner. The vibes, as they say, were extremely off. <laughs> <laughs> and they still are. In doing interviews and still in talking to people today, I hear a lot of pessimism, what some scholars have actually termed heteropessimism. It's these statements that dating sucks or that doesn't even exist anymore. The extremely common phrase, sorry guys, that all men are trash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and queer relationships are presenting maybe different issues, but they are also, you know, not getting off scot-free. And then women in particular would talk about their encounters and still do in really visceral and upsetting terms, encounters that culminated in sort of extreme or alarming sexual acts, say choking or some other porn-inspired <clears throat> violence that they just kind of felt like they should go along with out of surprise or just resignation. The word chaotic came up a lot as well, and not in like a fun sense, in an extremely negative sense. So I'll read another bit from the book. Rachel, 25, has the open face and friendly demeanor of a born and bred Midwesterner. She's lively and opinionated and feels in control of most areas of her life. But when it comes to sex, something isn't right. I don't know, she sighed over iced lattes as we spoke in downtown DC. I've never been in a situation where I felt pushed into something exactly, but there have been times when I felt like, oh, we're already here, we're already in my bed, so I'll give them a blowjob. Or I've gone home with somebody and we're having sex and they keep asking for something extreme or they say degrading stuff to me and I don't like it, but it's like, this is the situation we're in and I kind of feel like we have to follow suit. It's not like I was being forced into anything or that I feel unsafe, but it's not good. And I don't like how I feel afterwards. She goes on. Casual sex, she muses, thoughtfully picking over a salad. Do I really want this? Do I really enjoy this? Or is it because I think that this is what I should be doing in my 20s, what people expect of me? How much of this is just for the story? This was the sort of thing that I heard over and over again, an exchange that kind of repeated itself in many interviews. And maybe that story or some of this sounds familiar to you. Thinking that we should be having sex, even when we don't really desire it, because that's the impression we've been given by society. <laughs> and seeing ourselves as less than or incomplete or fallen behind somehow if we haven't, even though we're nothing of the sort. Engaging in sexual encounters that we don't really want for reasons we don't fully agree with far more often than we would like. But also having the impression that that's just how it goes and that it would be unreasonable to ask for more. Feeling jaded and discouraged by the romantic landscape and its lack of trust, emotion, or commitment. But also feeling like other options aren't realizable or even realistic. And experiencing too many of the encounters that sap the spirit and make us feel less human, not more. Sex that leaves us detached, disillusioned, or just dissatisfied. Often what I heard were stories that were not primarily about consent, whether someone had said yes enthusiastically enough or whether they'd had a firm no ignored. Instead, they were about care or actually a lack thereof. 
And they were about responsibilities that we should have had to other people, but failed. And it seemed clear to me that more consent, more definitions, affirmative, enthusiastic, whatever the next iteration would be, wasn't going to be enough and hadn't been enough in the past. We need something better. So actually a question detour. Um, how many of you are freshmen? No bold freshmen. I'm not using this information for anything. <laughs> uh, sophomores? Okay. Juniors? Seniors? Grad students? Actually, a lot of grad students. I was honestly just curious. Um, did you guys have to do a sort of like a sexual health or consent training before? Okay. Yeah, like one of these videos that you watch, it has like a quiz attached and it's, and then you just click through it. <laughs> don't learn anything. Yep, yeah, okay, same. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I hate to laugh, but it is funny because we, we all do it and it's clearly like not that useful. Um, <laughs> but in college, I had to do these trainings myself. Um, and there was like the online component that we did before coming on campus as freshmen. Um, and then as freshmen, we had to like watch a student perform play as part of our training. Oh, you have that too. Oh, great. I got it. Because <laughs> no one else did. Uh, <laughs> and I thought it was weird when I did it as a student. But then in the course of writing the book, I visited Princeton again almost 10 years later and watched the student play again. <laughs> And so my freshman year, it was called Sex on a Saturday Night, which is a weird name. Um, and then when I went back, like 10 years later, it was called The Way You Move, which is like less creepy, but also really cringe. <laughs> what it's, who's that song? That song is old already. I like the way you move. Outcast. Outcast. <laughs> I like Alcas. Never mind, it's really modern. It's very in. It's very cool. <laughs> um, but here's another bit from the book, and maybe this will be one of the last sections I just read. We file into a dark auditorium to watch a meant-to-be educational skit that will show them the freshmen how it all works here in the fresh wilderness of dorms and parties and their new set of peers. <coughs> the loud buzz of chatter dies down as the curtain goes up. Upperclassmen actors dramatize a typical weekend night out, complete with budding romances, bad jokes, and too much to drink. The crowd crows with laughter. They show us a pregame, a party, and then, startlingly, and alcohol-enabled sexual assault. That harrowing scene was followed by a somber debriefing and an introduction to the college's peer advisors for sexual health. Having sex with a blacked-out classmate was not okay because she could not consent. An administrator took pains to define the term and to discuss the gray area between a clear yes and an absolute no. She described it as a contaminated space where to engage in sexual activity was to assume varying amounts of risk. So this is where it began to strike me as odd, in a way it hadn't back when I was one of the 18-year-olds in the audience. 
something was missing from the conversation, which seemed awfully cold-blooded. The discussion was all about consent, but it was also only about consent. Consent isn't a bad thing, of course. It's incredibly necessary, and a profusion of sexual harassment cases and the whole Me Too movement taught us that. But yeah, just consent isn't enough. There's a wide area between non-consensual, which is to say criminal, sex, and the sort of sex that we want to have. If the bar is, did I avoid raping this person? The bar is on the floor. The bar is in hell. <laughs> That's not a good enough bar. And so I think that we need to move from laws, from rules, to ethics. From rule following and punishment escaping to a grander aspiration. An actual positive vision of what our sexual culture should be and how we should treat each other as human beings. So yes, that does mean ethics writ large. And ethics more broadly is a branch of philosophy and it's concerned with human conduct, specifically how individuals should behave in a society and how we can judge morally whether things are just or unjust, right or wrong. But there are multiple branches of ethics. There is the sort that emphasizes rules and duty and sort of getting it right, deontological ethics. And then there's the sort that emphasizes consequences for bad action, consequentialism. And I think that our current consent-first approach to sex is sort of a mix of the two. Understand the rule, follow the rule correctly so that you aren't me too or arrested. Rules, consequences. But I actually think that it would be healthier to take a virtue ethics approach. And that means a concern with moral character and virtue in a more general sense. A desire to reach for the good and define what the good looks like. Human flourishing, actually. Not just for oneself, but for everyone around us. And I would posit that at the heart of every ethic should be, hopefully is, a concern about someone who isn't us something other than our own desires and our own self-interest. And yes, a willingness to push past what we're given and to try and explore openly what the good is, what human flourishing looks like, and how best to approach it ourselves and more broadly as a society. So yes, in my mind, I think consent is a legal criterion, a necessary one, but it's not really an ethical criterion. It doesn't tell us how to treat people as an interaction continues. It doesn't provide an actual roadmap for how we should think or feel or what we should do if an interaction somehow goes off the rails. And it's very individual. It suggests that individual actions, ask for consent, speak your mind, be more forceful in saying yes or no, are enough to preempt the hurt and misunderstandings that inevitably come with something as intimate as sex. I think that settling for consent as the only or most essential question that we need to ask about whether sex is good is kind of a punt. Effectively, it takes a pass on harder and more important questions, 
whether that consent was fairly obtained, whether consent or this sort of conversation can ever fully convey what our partners might really ultimately want or what might be good for them. Whether, in fact, we, morally, should even be doing the thing that we've gotten consent to do. So that's consent. Necessary, but not sufficient. So what would a new ethic be? I found this to be one of the more, maybe not the, definitely not the only, but I think kind of the premier question that I felt like I needed to address in this book, because the Me Too moment sort of gave us a negative vision of our sexual culture, like this is what's bad, this is what we're not enjoying, this is what we don't want to be more of. Great, it's great that we can finally talk about that. But what do we actually want? What does a good sexual culture actually look like? And how do we get there from here? So I suggest in the book that a new and better sexual ethic might move our goals away from the individual and the negative. So moving away from just don't get me too'd or even don't be sad after sexual encounters towards something collaborative and positive. Am I present to the needs of my partner? Is this good for the other person, both physically and sort of in a virtue sense? How do I behave humanely towards other human beings. A better ethic than consent would be one that demands paying attention to the other person as a necessary precondition for any sort of ethical behavior. It would also mean holding ourselves to a higher standard and our partners too. It would probably mean demanding 100% respect for the other person and from the other person. So I started using the phrase willing the good of the other to describe this better than consent sexual ethic. And it's a phrase that I cribbed from Thomas Aquinas, who himself took it from Aristotle. And it was his definition of love. And in this understanding, it wasn't necessarily romantic love or even a feeling. Rather, love was something of an intention, the intention to bear goodwill toward another for the sake of that person and not oneself. So willing the good of the other means caring enough about another person to consider how your actions, and yes, their consequences, might affect the other person, and then choosing not to engage if the outcome would be negative. It was a mutual concern and empathy, thinking about someone other than yourself and then working so that their experience is as good as you hope yours would be. It's also taking responsibility for navigating interactions that might seem ambiguous, rather than using that ambiguity to excuse a self-serving misunderstanding. Oh, we hooked up because like I thought she was into it and she wasn't, that's really sad, but I just like didn't know, I misunderstood. And in practice, this would call for some things from us it would mean that we have to think about differentials in power that come with age, gender, experience, intoxication, and expectations of commitment, especially when the clothes are off, and hopefully before. <laughs> it's an ethic that would also acknowledge that sex is likely to be something different and more substantial than we might want or even expect it to be. And it would also ask us, make it our responsibility, in fact, 
to make a good faith bet on what the good of sex, of an encounter, of a relationship actually is, and what might then be a bad idea. Because there are many, many situations in which a partner might consent to sex, affirmatively, even enthusiastically, but in which sex might not be for their good, where it might still be wrong. And so willing the good of the other also means that we have to make judgments. And a call for people to make judgments feels kind of uncomfortable and unnatural at first, to be sure. I mean, we're brought up in a society that basically fetishizes freedom. We don't want to be Puritans, we don't want to be repressed, and I think justifiably, we don't want to oppress other people. And then more selfishly, we want to be chill and unattached, the better to sort of maximize our own utility and get on with our own lives. And then I think we've also been told, or at least have come to understand as a society, that moral questions are private questions, and that these aren't debates that we have in public, and that we can't impose our values on other people. And I think in many cases this does come from a positive place, but I also think that it's worth discussing, and in fact in this moment necessary to discuss, what sexual norms, desires, and acts make us better or worse people? Which ones seem corrosive to our relationships? Which ones strip dignity from others? What we want to normalize in a sexual culture that we actually all share and make up as individuals together. And also we do, as the Joker would put it, live in a society. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But we do, we live in a society where the way that we act, even in private, inevitably trickles out and changes the culture for everyone. And you know this. I mean, you can see this in the way that porn has leaked into the way that people have sex now, or what happens in even casual encounters, or how the normalization of dating apps, even if you're not using them, sort of transforms how the dating landscape looks for everyone else. Private acts don't necessarily stay private. So I think that we need a norm that's stronger than between two consenting adults, anything else goes. Because A, as we've discussed, consent leaves a lot out. And B, because what happens between two consenting adults doesn't necessarily stay there. And I do think, contra the sort of prevailing norms, that our new norms will need to be discussed and settled on publicly in conversation with other people. And so Rethinking Sex, subtitle, A Provocation, was meant to be a provocation not just in content, but also to provoke conversation with other people, to begin this discussion with each other so that we can begin to set these new norms together. And yes, willing the good of the other is my sort of humble proposal, but it's only a starting point for a broader conversation. I would also note that in general, willing the good of the other is most often realized in restraint, in inaction rather than action. It involves a certain level of maturity and self-knowledge on all of our parts. 
and an understanding that if we aren't sort of willing to sustain or maintain this interest in other people, this level of consideration in the moment of a sexual encounter or more broadly, we probably shouldn't be having sex. And so this is where I think at least that this ethic might be the better sexual ethic that we're looking for. Willing the good of the other is a sort of love that entails recognizing that other people are people just like us. It asks us, it asks us to reject the commodification of other people and of ourselves and of their sexuality and ours. Because if people are people, they're valuable. If they have an intrinsic dignity, we can't treat them like objects. So one more quick sidebar. I'm actually kind of surprised by how many men there are in the room, because often I feel like this is the sort of discussion debate that invites women or that women seem particularly concerned with. And I think that much of the discussion so far feels, probably feels that it's been framed from the female point of view. And that's probably because I'm a woman <laughs> um, and I'm speaking from my own perspective, but also because I think that it's women who have kind of by far gotten the short end of the stick in our current moment. Women are more likely to be assaulted. They're less likely to derive pleasure from sexual encounters and more likely to be either ignored or criticized or miraculously some combination of both when they complain about them. And I think that women were promised the most by the sexual revolution and the feminist movements, which I need to say very clearly, I think were important and necessary and also still very much incomplete. But I also think that women have seen perhaps the most harm from the co-option of those movements and from the sort of girl bossy, uncritical sex positivity that makes it hard to express discomfort and harder to say no for fear of somehow being a bad feminist or a bad modern person somehow. It feels like if in the past there was a pressure to say no to sex and to not talk about it, in the present there's often a similar but sort of polar opposite pressure to say yes, to always be adventurous and up for anything, to not have feelings or at least to hide them, to settle for hookups instead of relationships. But men also have a lot to gain from this higher standard. Because if too many women feel pressure to say yes, I think that too many men feel pressure not to say no. And the presumption that guys are always looking for sex or masculinity is toxic or sort of guys are assailants makes it harder for men to speak out about being sexually assaulted or coerced themselves. It encourages emotional repression and trivializes the need for real feeling and real care. Because I also think that men are more than just sort of mindless sex havers who love to objectify women and pursue their physical needs after getting perfunctory consent. I think that the lies men have been told and the lies that women have been told about themselves are harmful too. So that's kind of grim. Um, I think the natural question to ask is where we go from here. 
And I do think that we are in an area and an era of extremes. And what we need is a healthier sexual ethic, if only just to find a balance that actually serves us well, rather than taking away from us. And that means that we'll have to start telling the truth about sex, first of all. It's emotionality, it's biology, the social factors that influence us, even if we don't always recognize that they're having that influence at the time. And it will also mean, and this sometimes feels sad, but balancing our own desires with our responsibility to other people. And yes, recognizing that just getting consent is not enough. And it also will take community, not to sort of shame or stigmatize people, but to engage in a continual reform rather than relying on reductive rules. But our relationships with one another are what make up our society in public and private, and our actions don't take place in a vacuum. What happens in the bedroom doesn't necessarily stay there. And so I think that we just have to talk publicly about these questions, about what is good, yes, and what is not, about what our norms should be, instead of assuming that we'll each sort of sort it out individually, alone, and all come to a good place, because clearly that hasn't happened yet. And I think that there's a difference between telling people to change their desires and inviting them, inviting yourself to ask deeper questions about them. What do we want? And who taught us to want this? And why? And how? And I actually think that performing this sort of self-examination and society-wide examination could actually be an opportunity to decide for ourselves to actually create the sexual world that we want rather than receiving it sort of labeled and performed from a TikTok or a porn clip. Because the thing is, even when it goes well, even when it's the best it could be, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our connections to each other and our deepest selves. And despite all the arguments that it's only a physical act, it's clear to almost anyone that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after an encounter ends. Many of us have come to believe that consent, as a legal standard and a moral requirement, can somehow make our most unruly activity more manageable. But that was never going to be true, and it obviously isn't. Because consent is a floor, but it was never meant to be a ceiling. Thank you.